0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 76, The Dung Named. Last time, we saw Constantine V hold an ecumenical council to get the church to accept his view that icons should be removed from public life. We then went a decade further on in the story as the emperor led a couple of successful assaults on Bulgar territory before agreeing peace. We've now reached the point at which the emperor begins executing and persecuting his people. Let's hit play on the narrative for a bit, and then we'll rewind to look at things in more detail. Once again, the Bulgars overthrew their Khan for making peace with the Romans, and Constantine assembled an expedition in 766. The emperor marched north while a fleet sped up the coast ahead of him. However, on this occasion, a nasty storm blew up while the ships were anchored, and most of them were smashed into the rocks. Constantine arrived at Anchialus to discover that many of his men had drowned. To honour the dead, the Vasilefs ordered the remaining sailors to use hooks to drag as many bodies from the sea as possible those they retrieved, were given a Christian burial. Upon his return to the city, the emperor ordered the execution of a monk named Stephen, who had been locked in the praetorium, Constantinople's jail, for the past year. We'll discuss Stephen's crimes later, but it seems that the reason he was being killed now was the belief that he was involved in a conspiracy against the emperor. Men from the Tachmata were said to have dragged him through the streets before administering the final blows. Stephen was not alone in the praetorium, though. Many monks and nuns had been arrested, and later that summer they were paraded through the Hippodrome. Apparently the male and female holy men were forced to hold hands as they walked before the jeering crowd. This mock marriage ceremony was, of course, an insult to the vow of chastity that they'd all sworn. They were stripped of their rights as citizens and sent into exile. Soon afterwards, it was revealed that a wide-ranging conspiracy against the Emperor had been discovered. Nineteen important officials were paraded in the Hippodrome before being blinded or beheaded. These were very senior men. The postal Logothete, one of the commanders of the Tachmata, and the commanders of the armies in Thrace, Sicily, and the Opsychion. As the investigation deepened and men began to talk, the city prefect was incriminated and flogged. Then, most shocking of all, the patriarch, Constantine the Second was imprisoned and exiled. Soon afterwards, the emperor launched an attack on various monasteries around the capital and in western Anatolia. He seems to have shut some of them down and sold off their land. Others he turned into military barracks or supply depots. A few he merely impoverished by selling off their precious possessions. He seems to have encouraged local theme commanders to carry out similar inventories. The most enthusiastic proponent of this was Michael Lachano-Dracon, the Stratigos of the Trachision theme, who is said to have threatened holy men with blinding and banishment if they didn't return to civilian life. These attacks only seem to have gone on for seven years after the initial conspiracy, And back in the capital, the affair seems to have ended in 767 when the former patriarch Constantine was also shown to the crowds in the Hippodrome and then executed. So what are we to make of this sudden outburst of violence? Nicephorus and Theophanes present this as an attack on those who would defend the icons. The monk Stephen, or Saint Stephen the Younger, as he would become known, was a principled opponent of the Ecumenical Council of 754, and had begun preaching against the emperor soon afterwards. His words in defence of the holy icons inspired the conspiracy against Constantine. Enraged by this resistance, the emperor turned on the monastic profession – His humiliation of the monks and then his attacks on their property and livelihood were all driven by their defence of icons. The truth, of course, is more complicated. The best guesswork of historians is that there were a series of interlocking issues. The reason we know so much about St. Stephen the Younger is because of his official hagiography, a book published in the next century telling us about how wonderful he was This story was, of course, heavily influenced by the iconophile propaganda of the day. But between this and our historians, it seems likely that Stephen was in opposition to Constantine's policies and probably did resent the ban on icon veneration. However, Stephen was also accused of encouraging men away from service in the imperial court and toward the monastic life. Stephen lived near Chalcedon, and so it seems likely that he became a well-known holy man and source of guidance and inspiration to the men and women of the capital. Speaking out against the emperor from such close quarters was a dangerous business, and again, lurking in the sources is the question of whether or not the monk called into question the emperor's orthodoxy for one reason or another. Did he suffer from some ailment, or did the rumour persist that he really wasn't a Christian? It seems that the Emperor may have attempted to reason with him, then exiled him to silence his opposition when this failed, and he was only executed when he was implicated as part of the plot against the Emperor. That conspiracy of the 19 senior officers and doubtless many others is a mysterious incident. It seems clear to modern historians that this plot was not primarily motivated by the icons. In part because there's little evidence that the icon issue aroused such passions at court. All these men had had over a decade to express their disgust, so even if it was a factor it was clearly not the deciding one. But more significantly the involvement of the patriarch Constantine II seems to rule the icons out. As a major issue, this Constantine was appointed to the capital's bishopric during the ecumenical council of 754, meaning that he would have been intricately involved with drawing up changes to church law to remove icons from worship. No, icons were not the source of this plot, but then what was? We really don't know. It's possible that the naval disaster at Anchialis fueled a belief that the time was right to overthrow the emperor, but that can't have been the immediate cause of dissatisfaction. Beyond the usual greed and opportunism that surrounded every attempt to seize the throne, we are left largely in the dark. But one clue may be found in the assault that Constantine then launched on the monasteries. Was this a continuation of the conflicts his father Leo had had with the church? As you may remember, Leo had begun to tax church property and had clashes with both his patriarch and the pope over the issue. The empire was in a permanent state of war and it rankled many emperors to see so much money and manpower lying dormant in the church and the monastic houses. The fact that Stephen was accused of luring men into the service of the church may represent one of the emperor's real motives for this apparent persecution. We have to remember that the plague had ravaged the population of Constantinople only 20 years earlier. It had doubtless culled some of the best officers and administrators of the empire. Wealthy Romans often liked to leave their estates to the church or a monastery and some even founded one of their own when they retired. These institutions contributed plenty to country life, but from an imperial point of view, they were a dangerously unproductive area of society. To have a respected monk like Stephen speak against him and encourage his subordinates to abandon his side might have stuck in his craw could the dissatisfied clergy have acted as a catalyst to those in the palace who fancied they might make a better emperor? Perhaps those charged with collecting and administering the taxes were resentful of the emperor, whose constant campaigning certainly put the treasury under stress. This theory may gain some ground from the emperor's decision to then sell off and strip monasteries. Perhaps this is evidence of his need for cash. Although really the number of establishments that came under fire was probably very few in number. It's possible that they were simply the ones connected to the conspiracy. Or it could be that they were particularly well off, and he was sending a message that institutions of godliness did not and should not be hoarding wealth that the state badly needed. Once again, we're forced to consider whether state iconoclasm was less to do with icons and more about cowing the independence of the holy men and bringing them more closely under imperial control. A few years after the coup attempt, official opposition to iconoclasm was announced, not from within the empire, but from the eastern churches. They had by now had time to digest the decrees of Constantine's council and sent their objections to the Pope. At a synod in 769, the pontiff Stephen III officially condemned the ecumenical council of Hieria. This meant the Christian world was in schism thanks to Constantine's policies, a fact which certainly worried those in church circles. Constantine continued to attempt diplomacy, but putting pressure on the Pope was very difficult given Byzantium's diminished military presence in Italy, a situation which became even less promising when in 774 the Lombard Kingdom was captured and absorbed into the Frankish realm by King Charles, Charlemagne. This opposition to iconoclasm from outside the empire may well have influenced those who were disgruntled with Constantine, but as the Pope's official condemnation came years after the coup attempt, it doesn't seem like a primary influence. This whole period remains a mystery. We'll never know why exactly this attempt to overthrow the emperor came about, or the emperor's response I'm intrigued that Constantine was still battling for legitimacy even 30 years into his reign. There weren't many more plays in the imperial handbook left to prove to his people that he was their rightful ruler. He had spread his father's law books far and wide. He had won many battles. Prosperity seems to have increased thanks to a decade with no Arab raids. He also commissioned more construction projects than any emperor since before Heraclius. Most of these were in the capital. You may remember the huge earthquake which hit the city in 740, just before Leo died. Naturally, most of the rebuilding was completed under Constantine's watch. This included repairing the land walls and repositioning many imperial statues. It also meant reconstructing the... Ayir Irin, the small sister church of the Ayir Sophia. You can see pictures of its interior on the website and Facebook. Inside, frescoes and mosaics decorated the church, but no representations of people were visible in line with the iconoclast ideal. The sea walls needed mending after they were damaged by ice sheets in 760. Yes. Apparently during a bitterly cold winter, the Black Sea froze near the coast. People actually walked across the Bosphorus in amazement, and a young Theophanes recalls playing in the snow with his friends. However, when the ice began to melt, a large section careened into the walls, causing a shudder for miles around, that left people frightened. Most impressive of all, though, A severe drought struck Constantinople in 766, so the emperor opened his wallet and paid for a huge work crew to be recruited so that the aqueduct of Valens could be brought back into working order. The mighty structure had lain dormant since the Avars had cut it during the siege of 626. According to Theophanes, the emperor recruited for this project 1,000 masons, 200 plasterers, 500 clay workers, 5,000 labourers, and 200 brickmakers. Whether these numbers are accurate or not, it was clearly a large and expensive undertaking. Even our historian is forced to concede that when the work had thus been completed, water flowed into the city. When you remember that the aqueduct ran for some 250 kilometres to its water source you get a sense of how impressive a restoration this represented. Constantine's prestige in the city was never higher. A legend would later grow up that the emperor had slayed a dragon who was blocking the path of his waterway. Perhaps more importantly for the emperor, his son Leo had survived childhood and grown into a healthy 19-year-old. In December 769, he was married to a beautiful Athenian girl, Irene. Constantine also finished his rearrangement of the theme armies. For joining yet another conspiracy, the Obsycheon was further demoted. A new theme of the Vukelari was created, though in English it looks like Baccalarian, which I'll probably call it from now on. This was created to the east of the Obsequion to split this force into smaller detachments. You can now see the disposition of the theme armies on the map. Those theme armies were soon back in action because in 770, Arab raiders returned in force to Anatolia. The new Abbasid regime had by now established itself, and the regular campaigns against their traditional enemy were set to resume. This expedition was well-equipped and sacked the city of Laodicea Combusta in the Anatolicon. In response to Constantine's policies, the population was deported to Arab territory. The following year, the Arabs returned and the Byzantines raided Armenia in retaliation. In 772, Constantine attempted to score the kind of major victory which he and his father had achieved 32 years earlier, at Akroinon. An Arab force marched into Isoria to sack the city of Sikai. So the emperor ordered the forces of the Khan, the Khan, and the Bacalarian to block their retreat. However, this Arab force was not divided and was happy to turn and fight a pitched battle with the Byzantines. The Roman force was broken and retreated, the Arabs strolling home victorious with their booty. Sensing the danger this renewed offensive might bring, Constantine sent word to the caliph Mansur, asking for a truce, but no reply came. The theme armies held firm for now, though, and the emperor spent the next few years at war, with the Bulgars again. Whether the Bulgars had begun stirring once news of Roman defeats filtered through, or if the Emperor wanted to restore his prestige with more victories, we don't know. Either way, in spring 774, he sailed with his cavalry for the Danube Delta, while a land army made their way up the coast. But the seas were choppy and the weather ominous, so when the Bulgars asked for peace... Constantine reluctantly accepted. He left many cavalry detachments in Thrace, though, waiting for a pretext to attack. As autumn set in, his spies inside the Khanate told him that the Bulgars were planning to deport a friendly Slav tribe from the borderlands. Pretext in hand, the emperor marched up the coast from Anchialis and crushed the surprise forces of the Khan. Perhaps hoping to permanently cripple the Bulgar state and free his armies to face the Arabs, Constantine prepared for war again in 775. This time the emperor marched with his land forces, which was just as well as a storm did wreck some of the accompanying fleet, forcing the Romans to withdraw. The Bulgar Khan Telerig opened negotiations for peace again. Apparently, though, he used these discussions to discover the names of the Byzantine informers amongst his ranks and then had them all murdered. As the emperor prepared yet another expedition, he fell ill and died. The histories tell us that once he reached Arcadiopolis, he was stricken with a fever and developed boils on his legs and an accompanying inflammation before passing away on the journey home. He was 57 years old, and had ruled the empire for an impressive 34 of them. If it weren't for iconoclasm, you wonder if the histories would be hailing Constantine as the new, well, Constantine. He and his father seemed to have deliberately associated their regime with the cross, both as a non-iconic symbol but more as a reminder of the great Constantine who had won so much glory with it on his banners. Our Constantine then presented himself as lawgiver, builder, administrator, military commander, thrower of great spectacles and leader of the church. He had done everything an emperor could do and had done pretty well, even if much of the military glory and prosperity were largely dependent ...on the great civil war in the Caliphate. It would be easy to dismiss all the iconophile complaints against him... ...as so much historical whitewashing. But the fact remains that he suffered two fairly serious attempts on his throne... ...which clearly had wide support amongst the palace officials. Generally, this is not a sign of an emperor who is firmly in control of his realm. Clearly, some were upset about the anti-icon council though they seem to have been mainly monks and other churchmen, but of course those are the people whose spiritual authority often seemed more honest and trustworthy than the bloody banners of military emperors. The objection of the Pope was a serious issue. With hindsight, we know that the papacy would never again be physically part of the empire, but men at the time did not see it that way. The union of the church was important to the Byzantines and the legacy of division which Constantine left was to play a big role in undoing his work. There lingers something mysterious about Constantine, something we'll never know about him that casts doubt in the minds of those around him about his worthiness to rule. A part of this remains the lack of legitimacy in his dynasty, given that Leo was merely a provincial commander who usurped the throne. But that's clearly not the whole story. Constantine could do nothing about his father's ancestry. He was born in the palace, and by ruling for three decades, he gave his son a good chance of gaining the kind of acceptance that the Heraclians had enjoyed during the 7th century. Long term, Constantine's legacy is of course much disputed. The iconophiles were to annul his ecumenical council and to explain how so many of the empire's god-fearing bishops could have agreed to such blasphemous ideas, they needed Constantine to become a monster. So his attacks on his enemies all came to be remembered as being motivated by icons, and his character was assassinated in every imaginable way including his nickname, Copronimos, the dung-named. The story goes that as the baby Constantine was being baptised, he fouled the waters, thus indicating God's desire for his memory to be covered in dung. Back in 775, though, it seems more likely that he was genuinely mourned. The men of the Tachmata had loved him and would miss his firm and successful leadership. The people of the capital, who had known only him as emperor, would tell their children about the great man who rebuilt the city after plague and natural disaster had brought it to ruin. For many, he was a towering figure. He dominated his times in a similar way to Justinian or Heraclius, in that those who came after him were measured against his achievements. By leading his armies personally into battle, he set a precedent which his successors would be forced to live up to. He did leave enemies behind. Principled opposition to his icon policy did exist within the empire, and it seems likely that out in the provinces, people continued to keep icons in their own homes and weren't troubled by the official pronouncements. Given time, it's possible that this imperial policy would have slowly detached icons from orthodox behavior, but the emperor's daughter in law Irene would see to it that that would not be the case. Another group happy to see the back of the emperor were the Bulgars. They remained too small a people to threaten the Theodosian land walls, and relied on the Romans being permanently distracted by the Arabs to maintain their freedom. Constantine's campaigns had done some serious damage, but their determination and skill had seen him off, and the next few emperors would be far less adept at dealing with them. Even though there are 25 more years of this century left, it's time for me to ask you, do you have any questions? This century will end neatly in 802, in terms of the narrative. So now is the time to start thinking about questions you'd like to ask. Anything about the 8th century, large or small, anything you didn't follow, or anything you wanted to know more about. Send it in to thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com, or post it on Facebook, or at the website, or tweet me at Byzantiumcast. I will then gather them and hope to answer as many as I can during our end-of-the-century tour. I'd also like to take this moment to solicit from you some suggestions for a, not quite an acronym or an acrostic, uh, but a mnemonic of some kind, I can't seem to find the right word, to help us remember which Constantine was which. There are eleven Emperor Constantines and eleven letters in the English spelling of the name. Now, I know we'll have no trouble remembering the first one, but in my head I was thinking he created the city, his son owned the western provinces, Heraclius' son did not live long, you get the idea, it's cheesy, but I think if one of you creates a clever one, we can remember that the fourth was behind the siege that never happened, and the fifth was the dung-named, and so on you know, be creative with it. Uh, If it spells out a sentence, that's brilliant, but I'm imagining that's a bit too complicated, and it'll have to be uh, uh, more little short sentences that we can remember. But anyway, we've got until 1453 to uh, figure it out, so we can go on modifying and uh, taking suggestions, but if one of you comes up with something really good, you will get credit, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, we'll all use it to remember Constantine and uh, one day children will learn it in school. You know, small ambitions. For those of you interested in our sources, the future Patriarch Nicephorus's history cuts out around now. So we're now solely in the hands of Theophanes for the rest of the century. Nicephorus, though, will reappear in our narrative soon enough when he becomes the Patriarch in 806. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and I will announce an update on the fundraising sale as soon as I can.